This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. What do a mini horse and a dog have in common? They're the only two animals that can be legal service animals. Emotional support animals, on the other hand, can be cats, birds, and even pigs. A new Colorado law wants to better differentiate between the two and clarify what's allowed and where. Julie Riskin is the executive director of the Colorado Cross-Disability Coalition. Julie, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Can you give a brief overview of this new state law? Sure. Um, House Bill 161426 was passed last year, and it was really to address a proliferation of people basically faking service dogs or assistance dogs. So again, there are federal laws that govern both service dogs and in the federal law, they're called emotional support animals. In the state law, they're called assistance animals. Mm. Uh, and And I use the word dog all the time in federal law, again, under the Americans with Disabilities Act, it's really a service dog or a miniature horse, uh, as you've mentioned, in, as for emotional support animals, which are really only allowed in housing and air travel that can be a broader range of animals. So how many states have laws related to emotional support animals besides Colorado? So emotional support animals are allowed in housing under the Fair Housing Act which is a federal law, and they're allowed on air travel under the Air Carriers Access Act, which is also a federal law. This state law, which cannot, which it's important to understand, cannot trump a federal law. I see. So this really cannot make things more strict. It it can't change the definition. It can't change who's allowed where. What it can do is say in Colorado, if someone is faking a service animal and or, or an emotional support animal, and is warned and does it again, they can get a ticket. They can be fined. And, and how do you know or does one know if an animal is, is fake or not a service or emotional support animal? Okay. So we'll talk about them one at a time. Okay. Uh, if, if, for a service animal, two, you're allowed to really ask two questions. You're allowed to ask, is this a service animal for a disability, not what the disability is, and what does it do? You're not allowed to ask, what's your disability? You're allowed to ask, what does it do? Now, and you're only allowed to ask that if it's not obvious. So if someone in a wheelchair has a dog that is obviously pulling it, you cannot ask. There is no requirement for a vest or any kind of marking, and there's no such thing as certification. That's a, that's a, a legal fiction, I guess. There is no such thing. So, there, so, so, how does one become a qualified service animal? Is, is so there isn't. It, it has to be individually trained to do a specific task for the person with a disability. For example, I, I I've seen dogs in videos opening refrigerator right. doors, exactly. or, or, or nudging someone when it's time to take a medicine. Exactly, or exactly. The, and again, that's that individual training. Now, some people get training from a company. Some people train the dog themselves. And some people go to a pro. There are a few programs where they will teach you how to train your dog yourself. So, because there is no way to get certified, right? There is no such thing as certification. You could teach your pet yourself, right? Yeah. Now, again, it has it. It still has to do the task, and it has to be. It has to be a disability related task. I see. Um, One of the one of the things that people often talk about is they say, "Oh, well, my dog protects me." That's not. It it has to be nonviolent protection or non intrusive. You can't walk around in public with a dog saying, "You know, kind of sick them if someone bothers you." Uh, so you so protection is not really a valid task, but it that, but it can be 
there can there is such a thing as a true psychiatric service dog, and that's different from an emotional support dog. I see. But one of the big ways you can tell is behavior. A true service dog behaves in public and behaves all the time. They don't, you know, for the most part, and again, dogs are dogs, so it's not like there's never a little mistake, but they're certainly, they're housebroken, and that's all the time. They don't bark. They don't beg and whine. They don't jump up on furniture. A true service dog, you don't even notice that they're there. So it's more than than wearing a vest or something like exactly, that. Exactly, exactly. What are the differences then between a service animal and an emotional support animal? Okay, good question. So an emotional support animal, again, doesn't go everywhere publicly. An emotional support animal is for someone who has a mental illness or, you know, some kind of cognitive issue or mental illness. And the routine that having that animal allows them to fully enjoy and live in enjoy their dwelling which is fair housing act speak and live in the community so for example someone who has suffers or has severe depression they might have a dog and because they have to take the dog out every day they're going to get out of the house that mm. that's a, a good example one of the things that this law did the new law is it also put in for housing because under the Fair Housing Act, you cannot surcharge for a disability accommodation. So again, the abuse has been people saying, this is my emotional support animal to avoid a pet fee or pet deposit. And and with that then, to be qualified as an emotional support animal, there must be some steps that one yes. needs to take to be certified. So what the law says is that the what the law does really is it regulates licensees like medical, mental health professionals to say if you are going to write a letter that says this patient has this has a disability or has a mental illness and this animal is necessary, you know, there's a nexus between having the animal and the person's disability that you need to know, you need to be able to kind of affirm that you know what the dis- what disability is under the Fair Housing Act, which is the same as under the Americans with Disabilities Act, and that you know that there's a nexus. So you can't you can no longer just write a letter for someone you've not met in Colorado. Now again, under the federal law, so this is what our state law says, mm-hmm. enforcement may be a bit challenging because under the federal law it doesn't have to be necessarily a doctor or a psychiatrist. It can be any professional in the know can write a letter. But under the housing laws, you do have to – the landlord can require a letter. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're speaking with Julie Riskin with the Colorado Cross Disability Coalition. She's here to help explain a new Colorado law that makes it a crime to try and pass off a pet as either a service or emotional support animal. Uh, Getting back to that emotional support animal, uh, typically if you have a pet, let's say in an apartment, uh, you pay for that pet. There is a fee. This would not – if there was a qualification there – then that, that animal would be an emotional support animal and no charge would be. For, for either a service animal or emotional support animal, and this has nothing to do with the new law. This has been the case, you know, always been the case as long as we've had civil rights laws. You cannot surcharge. Basically, there's an, a, rule, a law against surcharging for a disability accommodation. What, what are some of the, the problems that fake service dogs uh, cause in public spaces? The the biggest problem for our community is that they interfere with real service dogs because they're not trained 
And so they lunge after other dogs, for example. So someone might be walking. This happened to one of my employees. She was shopping and it, I think it, it's some department store and, you know, she was shopping with her well-trained service dog and some other dog lunged and was trying to attack her service dog. Now, if a dog, again, dogs who were trained, they can become traumatized and stressed, and then they they can't talk. They can't go to talk therapy. That then can cause them to have a behavior problem, and they can be retired after someone has put sometimes thousands of dollars into training that dog and, and developing the bond and everything else. So it's very serious. It also, of course, gives all service dogs a bad name. Um, because then people, you know, who see dogs misbehaving or causing problems don't want any animals around. And that, and so it hurts people who are genuinely using service dogs. And it also hurts businesses because businesses may not know what, what can I do? What can I say? And that part of what this law was, was to give businesses some tools and to, create a platform to do education to be able to say to businesses, it's okay to ask questions and someone who's a legitimate service dog user won't mind the questions and will be able to easily answer the questions. But, but could somebody argue that that a dog making someone feel better uh, is a specific task, much like opening doors or, or pulling a wheelchair? Uh, I guess you could argue that. That's not what the law says. What the law says is that you have to do a specific task. So, for example, a psychiatric service dog, which is not an emotional support animal, might do something like sense if someone who has bipolar is getting manic and should leave a crowded, noisy situation, and they might nudge the person. They might remind them to take medication throughout the day. Uh, an emotional support animal is really what all of us get from our pets. Hmm. But for people who are living with mental illnesses, often low income, often in public housing, they need to be able to have that animal. And it might be, while it makes all of us feel better, <clears throat> for someone with those limitations, it might mean the difference between living independently and not living independently. Julie? Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Julie Riskin is the executive director of the Colorado Cross Disability Coalition. She spoke with us about a new Colorado law that criminalizes passing off a pet as a service animal. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. President Trump's pick for the Supreme Court is Judge Neil Gorsuch of Boulder. If confirmed, he'll be the second Coloradan to serve on the nation's highest court. The first was Byron White, a former football star who ruled on some of the court's most well-known and controversial cases, from Miranda rights to abortion in Roe v. Wade. Dennis Hutchinson's clerked for Justice White. He's a law professor at the University of Chicago and author of The Man Who Once Was Wizard White. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you. I want to talk about Justice White's legal legacy in a moment. But first, his personal story is remarkable. He was truly a child of Colorado, born in 1917 and raised in the small town of Wellington near Fort Collins. What was that life like? Uh, they were sugar beet farmers. They were poor and, and everyone worked all the time, right? It was hard. It was hard scrabble. Absolutely. His uh, father ran a lumber yard, but uh, to make ends uh, meet, they uh, raised uh, sugar beets, and Byron and his older brother Sam uh, would uh, hoe and top the beets from the time that they could uh, wield a hoe, uh, and it was backbreaking work. 
And his parents never finished high school, but but Byron graduated from the University of Colorado, and he earned a Rhodes Scholarship, and that sent him to Correct. Oxford. C- can you talk a bit about, you know, before he was named to the Supreme Court, and before all that, he was he was into football, right? Uh, he was certainly into football. Uh, he was uh, a huge name in college football uh, in the late 1930s, uh, and a huge name nationally which is unusual because most of the press uh, thought that uh, football stopped at the Allegheny Mountains. Uh, And he was uh, uh, truly a a remarkable figure. Uh, And he uh, received the highest salary in the very poorly organized National Football League at the time. In 1938, uh, he was paid $15,000 a year. And, And when did he pick up this nickname, Wizard? What's that all about? Yeah, what is that all about? Uh, sometime uh, in college, uh, some wag on the campus newspaper uh, called him Wizard. It was a name he hated uh, till he drew his last breath. And was he famous as a football player? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, he uh, led uh, the league in uh, uh, NFL in uh, rushing uh, at one point. Uh, and he was certainly an All-American. He was, uh, as a college player, he was number two uh, in the Heisman Trophy voting for 1938. Wow. And he he played for the Pittsburgh Pirates, right? And that's now the Steelers, correct? That's it, it, It's the same franchise in those days. Uh, Art Rooney, uh, the Rooney family still owns the franchise, uh, was trying to identify with a much more famous uh, baseball team. But they eventually changed the name to Steelers. I see. He left after a season with the Pittsburgh Pirates and, and went to study at Oxford. Later, he played for the Detroit Lions while pursuing law at Yale. What was the Correct. choice like for him between football and law? Apparently, he did both both very well, right? He did both very well. Uh, he graduated uh, uh, top of his class uh, at the Yale Law School, uh, clerk for the Chief Justice of the United States. Uh, and then came back to Colorado. Hmm. <clears throat> and he returned to he Colorado. Married, he married, and his uh, his wife was the daughter of the president of the University of Colorado, Robert Stearns. And, <clears throat> and in terms of the 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 money, would did the money that he made from from you know playing professional football did that help maybe kind of weigh his decision a bit there between you know going law and staying with football and, and vice versa? Well, he he was very pragmatic all his life. And he played uh, professional football uh, at a time when he could make some money, which would help his uh, brother through medical school and would help uh, his parents uh, in their retirement. $15,000 was a lot of money back then. It certainly was. And uh, by the time he had finished uh, Yale, he was interrupted uh, for war service, of course, served in the Navy. Uh, He figured that uh, he'd done enough and that he could uh, start his own family, return to Colorado, which he loved. Uh, and there he uh, practiced law quietly for uh, some years. And then in 1962, he was nominated by President John F. Kennedy to the Supreme Court. Uh, That's correct. He met Kennedy in the South Seas when they were both serving in the Navy. And in fact, White wrote the intelligence report on the sinking of PT-109. Which is the the ship that uh, John F. Kennedy was on. That's correct. 
Now, we're about to enter what could be a, a battle over Judge Neil Gorsuch. Uh, do the two compare the, the nomination could, could of... Could be is an understatement, Nathan. <laughs> the, the, the battle is royal already. Well, well, do the two compare the nomination of, of uh, Byron White and the nomination potentially of Judge Neil Gorsuch? Well, the reason that White was nominated is that uh, he had served in Kennedy's campaign. Uh, John F. Kennedy had made him deputy attorney general uh, under his uh, brother uh, Robert. And so he'd served in the administration uh, for more than a year at the time he was nominated to the court. Uh, So he was uh, truly a a Kennedy uh, insider. Uh, Judge Gorsuch, uh, who later clerked for Justice White, uh, is someone who's just been quietly serving as a very distinguished judge on the Tenth Circuit based in Denver for the last decade. He has no, uh, that I know of, and I've known Neil for a long time, he has uh, no connections uh, with Trump or the Trump Organization otherwise. But it seems, from what I've, I've read, that uh, Byron White was confirmed by a voice vote. That seems something that doesn't happen today, right? He was confirmed uh, by a voice vote uh, after a 15-minute hearing. Very different than, than recent Supreme totally Court Totally different, absolutely. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. My guest is Dennis Hutchinson, a law professor at the University of Chicago, who clerked for Justice Byron White and wrote the biography, The Man Who Once Was Wizard White. I want to listen to Justice White describe his early years on the court. Here's a clip. Life was simpler then. I had never aspired to be a judge, and being one was very different from being on the other side of the bench. It was both a trying and an exciting experience. Where else can one be so isolated and alone, yet turn from hero to heel, or from heel to hero, in just 10 pages or so? Hero to heel, or from heel to hero, in just 10 pages or so. There was controversy during White's tenure on the court. Uh, He served for 31 years, and in that time, the court addressed a lot of contentious issues. In Gideon versus Wainwright, he agreed that the state must provide a lawyer for a defendant who can't afford one. But then in Miranda, he voted against reading people their rights. Is that a contradiction? I don't think so, necessarily. I, he, was, he was always concerned, in a way that uh, Judge Gorsuch has always been con- concerned, with judges overreaching uh, their authority. Hmm. Uh, and in Miranda, where the Supreme Court is essentially prescribing a script uh, that the police uh, must say to someone who's in custody, he, he thought that that's not uh, a judicial business. And White voted with the majority in 1965 that people have the right to use birth control. But in the famous Roe v. Wade case, which protected the right to abortion, he dissented. Why? Well, he thought, I think, in the the birth control case uh, that the Connecticut statute uh, was simply irrational, that it it didn't make any sense uh, in terms of what its objective was uh, and what it uh, nominally covered. in Roe versus Wade, he essentially accused the court uh, almost uh, of acting illegitimately. He said there's nothing in the text, history, uh, or anything in the Constitution that points to the identification of a right like this. Uh, and we're certainly overstepping uh, our authority if we identify one. Now, how would you describe Justice Byron White's legal philosophy with that said? Uh, intensely pragmatic, number one. Uh, extremely sensitive to the limits of his power. In other words, he saw being a justice as a responsibility and not an opportunity. And I think those were his lodestones.
What would White say his legacy was, do you think? Uh, I know exactly what he would say, because he did say, I shouldn't have a legacy. Judges shouldn't have legacies. They should just decide cases and shut up. Is that what he is that what what he was like? Uh, very to the point, and because you clerked for him on the Supreme Court, I did, I did. Uh, yes, very to the point. Uh, some would say brusque, uh, sometimes even uh, abrupt. He was a no nonsense person. Curmudgeonly, maybe. Uh, I'll I'll let you uh, tack that one on. <laughs> well, you you say he refused to to sell himself. Um, you know, he was a, a generation that came to Washington with Kennedy, you know, men who fought in World War II and, and knew what it exactly. meant to be in harm's way. That influenced exactly. his time on the court, correct? Oh, I, I, I think it did. Uh, I, I think it, it made him uh, uh, take even more seriously what he saw as his responsibility. You know, what I fought for uh, was not uh, an opportunity uh, to make law, uh, but to adhere to the Constitution. Like you, Neil Gorsuch, the man President Trump has nominated to serve on the Supreme Court, clerked for Justice White. And in a recent press conference, he called him his first mentor in the legal field. What do you think uh, Gorsuch learned from White? I think he uh, certainly learned, uh, you know, what a a role model can be in terms of hard work, uh, integrity uh, and, in fact, modesty. And was that the same for you? Was that the same feeling you 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 learned from uh, Byron White? It certainly was. He was always the first one in chambers in the morning, and often the last one to leave. Dennis, thanks so much for joining us. Nathan, that was a pleasure. Dennis Hutchinson, I miss Colorado. I have to say that. <laughs> well, you should come back anytime. Thank you very much. I accept <laughs> the invitation at some point. Dennis Hutchinson is author of The Man Who Once Was Wizard White, a biography of the late Supreme Court Justice Byron White. He's a law professor at the University of Chicago. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. There's a kitschy roadside attraction east of Lyman, Colorado, called the World's Wonderview Tower. It stands high above the eastern plains an hour and a half from Denver. A large sign saying C6 States, which greeted tourists during the tower's heyday, is now faded and old, and the tourists have long gone. The Wonderview Tower is one of three sites just selected for the 2017 list of the state's most endangered places. Joining us is Jennifer Origo-Charles. She runs Colorado Preservation Incorporated, which compiles the yearly list. Jennifer, welcome back to the program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Tell us a bit more about the world's Wonderview Tower. What exactly is it? <laughs> it well, you set it up beautifully for <laughs> us. It, it's certainly one of those great roadside attractions in Colorado that... Uh, a lot of people probably have uh, memories of as a community landmark. Um, it was constructed in the early 1900s as an observation tower. And um, over the years, it's kind of changed hands. It went from Charles Gregory in the 1920s to Jerry Chubbuck in 1967. And it just housed a lot of uh, quirky attractions, uh, everything from two-headed calves to uh, Indian artifacts. And it even had a, a roadside cafe. And it truly was a roadside attraction. You could see it, I'm assuming, coming down the road and you stopped for... 
Oh, yeah. It, it was a landmark. And, you know, people don't realize that some of these places that we've um, come to love can be threatened along the way. So when Jerry died, um, you know, they're really we weren't sure what was going to happen to it. And uh, just last year, a group of uh, individuals kind of purchased it and uh, formed the Six C States <laughs> LLC. And um, they're trying to save it. Why is it on the list this year? Is it, is it because that hasn't happened? There hasn't been much of a preservation effort? or Yeah, well, I think and kind of an understanding just to give you a little bit of background on our list. Um, Colorado Preservation started this 20 years ago. And essentially what we try to do is tell the story of Colorado's history through some of our endangered places. So we select nominations from the public throughout the year. And this one came up. And um, it's a story that we haven't told yet Um roadside attractions in Colorado. We did list the neon signs on Colfax, but it's a little bit different, Ben. And, um, you know, we knew there was a lot of community support and we knew there was a lot that our organization could do to uh, bring it hopefully to a save. So we decided to get involved. And this is one of uh, just three that we selected this year. And if a community or, or a person has a place they feel is endangered, what's the criteria? You know, we look at a lot of things. We want good regional representation. Um, We work with communities throughout the state. We've got 49 of the counties covered. And uh, we really want to see that level of community support. You know, there's unfortunately a lot of places in need throughout the state that are historically important. But um, we need to know we've got our local advocates that are uh, pushing it forward. And then, you know, we want to know what our organization can do to get involved, um, you know, and that's all the things that we consider when we select a place. Is it getting the organizations and the, and the places that are already on the list talking with these new new places to say, hey, this is what we went through. Maybe we can help you. Is that? Yeah, that's certainly part of it. You know, our organization can help write grants. Um, and a lot of times it's, it's bringing the public to these important places, you know, getting um, your listeners aware of what's out there. And, um, you know, we have created kind of regional loops where people can go on our website and do tours of the state, you know, find out a little bit about uh, Colorado's history that we all love. And, and one of the places on this list is an entire street. It's located <laughs> in Greeley in Weld County, north of Denver. What makes this entire street uh, special and why is it endangered? You know, we start small, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, this is a uh, it's new Raymer, which is a community on uh, northeastern plains. And um, it's a whole street, Center Avenue. Um, And at one point, it was sort of the bustling hub of the community. You know, there were all these different stores. And um, right now, most of them are vacant. Um, They're privately owned. But the community really wants to see something happen there. And we think by our organization getting involved and help restore maybe just one building, kind of starting with that, it can be a catalyst for redevelopment for the entire street. Um, It's actually on the way to the Pawnee National Grasslands Mm. along a scenic byway. So, you know, we think sort of if, if you build it, people will come. People are already kind of stopping through this area, but there's no place to um, really be. And so it would help um, not only just the residents, but uh, the individuals that were coming through as well. Uh, The third one on the list this year is Temple Aaron in Trinidad, south of Colorado Springs in Pueblo. Uh, We interviewed the man who used to take care of the place. It closed recently and is now on the market. We'll hear that interview in a bit, but uh, can you give us a little bit of a background about uh, Temple Aaron? Yes, it's a um, beautifully, uh, wonderfully historic synagogue in Trinidad. It was built in 1889 um, for the congregation and just a, a 
really unique building, lots of Turkish and Moorish elements in it. And, you know, it closed in 2016 for the first time, not having its uh, high holy days. And, you know, that was certainly sad, not only for the Jewish community, but for the community of Trinidad as well. You know, this is just such an important place. You know, we talk about um, these places having senses of place for um, communities, and this one certainly had it. So, um, yes, it it is for sale, and we're trying to help them find an appropriate buyer who will um, have an appreciation for what it is. So it still has a tenuous future. Uh, over the place, over the years, you've chosen 113 sites uh, in the state. I understand 41 have been saved and six have been lost. So there is that possibility. I want to talk about uh, Amache, uh, Camp Amache in the uh, southeastern part of the state. That's been able to be preserved. Yes. And a, a lot of people don't know about that part of um, our country's history, you know, our state's history. Um, After, uh, well, actually during World War II, there were these Japanese internment camps that um, came up um, and people were actually taken to these locations. So in um, Grenada, over six, or actually as many as um, 7,000 Japanese Americans were were forced onto these relocation sites. And um, they stayed there for as many as three years. So after the war ended, a lot of the buildings were just um, moved taken down. But right now you kind of can come up to the site and the roads are still there. You know, it's these this vacant site that we've been trying to um, bring new life to. There's an audio trail. Um, you, you know, we've just recently restored. Um, there's a water tank, a water tower, um, a guard tower and a barracks that's there now. And so restoration will continue on that, that location. Yes. And as well as the other places, we'll... Uh Will you continue to to stick with these places that have been on the endangered list years past? Yeah, you know, we say uh, once we list you as endangered, even if you're saved, you know, that's not a guarantee that it's not going to be threatened again down the road. And even the ones that are lost, we try to um, promote the stories and lessons learned through those loss so other communities can learn from them. That's Jennifer Rigo Charles. She's the executive director of Colorado Preservation, Inc., which compiles the Colorado Endangered Places list each year. Jennifer, thanks for being here. Thank you so much. As we said, Temple Aaron in Trinidad is one of the three sites Origo's group wants to save. It was Colorado's oldest continuously operating synagogue. In the fall, I spoke with Randy Rubin of Raton, New Mexico, who looked after the temple. We spoke just as the property was being put on the market last year. Take us to this 1889 temple. Uh, What's it look like when you see it in person? Well, it's a magnificent structure. It sits atop a hill in Trinidad, Colorado, and has a grand vista overlooking the whole, if I may use the word, Trinidad Valley. Uh, It's quite a, a place to see, and it has, as I said, a commanding view. It's got red brick. It's got a Moorish influence with German influence also. It was designed by the famous rep architects who popularized the territorial style in Santa Fe. And it's got magnificent stained glass in basic colors. And the part that's hard for us to accept is the end of the line after 127 years. Yeah. I understand you hosted the temple's final event last Saturday. That was a lecture by the University of Colorado Boulder's Jewish Studies program. And during the lecture, there was a short performance on the pipe organ. What can you tell us about the organ? The organ is an SD organ 
It was made in Brattleboro, Vermont. I'm not quite sure the year of it, but it's probably got about 40 feet of gold pipes. They're painted gold, I might add, around the circumference of the organ atop. And it has two keyboards with a lot of different organ stops and ways of making the organ sound different. And quite a number of foot pedals. Everything is wood. And it has a magnificent sound that resonates well in that large space. It's plaster with uh, wood. So it, it has a majestic sound. And it's been there it, for, as, for as long as you can remember, isn't that right? Oh, yes. I think it's a minimum of 80 to, well, I would say 80 or 90 years old. I'm not sure it's the original one, Nathan, that was installed. Uh, it's all wood and seen it from behind, which we're able to do. Everything is wood with various bellows and things like that. Another, I find, interesting point when I was a child in the synagogue, when it's turned on, there's this whirring noise as the bellows filled up. And it, it's kind of, well, you realize that the organ is being prepared for play. How did this temple form in an area that's not exactly known for Jewish culture? In 1883, there was an influx of Jewish merchants and traders along the Santa Fe Trail prior to the railroad coming into Trinidad. And the original or the first mayor of Trinidad was a fellow by the name of Jaffa. And they organized a synagogue, well, I shouldn't say a synagogue, they organized a congregation in 1883. And a short six years later, they had enough wherewithal to build Temple Aaron for the low price of $12,500 in those days. And it's remained intact going since that time. And it's been 100 years since there were weekly services at the temple. Uh, How much use has the synagogue had in recent years? I'm sorry, repeat that again, please. How much Uh, use has the synagogue had in recent years? uh, Well, we've had High Holy Day services uh, for Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and a community Passover as well as an interfaith program that we open up the temple, invite the entire Trinidad and Raton communities, and we have a speaker and light refreshments after. So I would say a total of about six days a year. And occasionally we've had Hanukkah parties. So the the usage has dropped since 1916. That was when the last resident rabbi was there, Rabbi Freudenthal. He was the original and last. But, you know, photos I've seen of the temple show it's still in remarkable shape. How difficult has the upkeep been, especially since the building's not in regular use? It's been somewhat difficult, but we've had a great partnership with History Colorado. They've been most cooperative, and we've tried to do our part also. And they've stabilized the building, and that has made the the appearance as well as the structure as good as it is. It's been well taken care of. We've tried to do the right things by it. The grass is green. We sweep it. It's cleaned. It's polished. It's dusted, as well as the, you know, the infrastructure itself being taken care of. But it has been a very difficult undertaking, and that's one of the reasons, unfortunately, and it's heartbreaking for us, it's emotional, that we've had to put it on the market. And and that's one of the main reasons. Is that the only reason why you're selling it now? That and the, there's a declining, very small Jewish population in this area. Although our membership extends from Denver to Albuquerque, 
there's only about 12 paid members in our very, very small congregation, and the dues just don't sustain the amount of money needed to maintain it. What's going to happen to the Torahs, the sacred scrolls, if the temple is sold for a non-Jewish use? Great question. Uh, We have sold one to a congregation in Denver, and there's a group of people in Albuquerque looking at another, and they'll be here next week to inspect them. And there's three more. Uh, The congregation would like to retain one should we ever be able to have services again. And that's still an unknown question. I don't know if it would be donated to another Jewish institution or possibly put into some sort of museum. That's kind of unknown. We've never gone down this path before, as you might imagine. Well, with that said, how has the temple closing affected you and the congregation? Nathan, it's been heartbreaking. I just got off the phone with my mother, who's 93 years old and lives in Colorado Springs. We're all feeling like the diaspora has come upon us. All my life, I've had a place to go for contemplation, meditation, and of course, worship, and it's over. And this has been very, very difficult. My mother's association, our family, started in 1946 when she married my father and moved to Raton from Albuquerque. And it's been, it's very difficult. We've had a succession of terrific rabbis with good sermons that's led, that have led great worship services. Um, it, it's, it's heartbreaking. And I, I don't mean to sound too emotional, but... Well, well your, your parents took care of the temple before you, and, and your family's been involved in the congregation for, for many years. And I, I was told you even had your bar mitzvah there. I did have my bar mitzvah there, as my brother did, and mine was in 60, 1962. My brother was in 1964. My daughter was bat mitzvah there, and my son was bar mitzvah there. Uh, those are the last ones that possibly could ever take place there. So we've had a long association with, a, with Temple Aaron. And after B. Sanders passed away, uh, my, my mother and father took over the care of the temple in 1985, and when they moved from Raton to Colorado Springs, I assumed the mantle and have tried to keep the flame going. Is there any prospect for the building, maybe a county or, or city looking at, at taking it on? Or? At this point, we don't think so. Uh, there's, We've put it on the market with a real estate broker out of Colorado Springs, and that seems to be the path we're going to be taking. And its eventual use, obviously, we don't know, but I hope it remains some sort of sacred place with a connection to what it's been for 127 years. Randy Rubin of Raton, New Mexico, led the Congregation of Temple Aaron in Trinidad. I spoke with him last year. The temple closed after 127 years and is now on the list of most endangered Colorado places. We've posted a link to a 360-degree panorama of the temple at cprnews.org. You can also find a slideshow of the 2017 most endangered Colorado places, as noted by Colorado Preservation, Inc. at cprnews.org. Up next, we go on a bus ride with the first Poet Laureate of Aurora. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
Aurora's first poet laureate finished his three-year term last week. How could a man dream of breaking racial fences? How could a man dream of fearing consequences through the strife failure? But most of all, fear, man, forget dreams, because I would have had nightmares. That's Jovan Mays at last year's Martin Luther King Jr. Day celebration hosted by Aurora. You can often find Mays working in libraries, museums, and schools around the city. One of his favorite places to write, though, is on city buses. CPR's arts reporter Corey Jones recently took a ride with the poet and has this profile. For Jovan Mays, this city bus isn't just public transportation. It's a source of inspiration. You got any two tickets? Transfers, yeah, that would be great. All right. We're on the, the uh, 15L, you know. To me, like, the 15 and the 15L. You want to know the city? Hop on. <laughs> this bus route runs along East Colfax from Aurora to Denver and back. It's a busy avenue, and the 15 carries a lot of people, including Mays. It might as well be a diner or, or like my YMCA in the morning. Buses remind Mays of his grandfather, who was a bus driver in Brooklyn. Mays was born and raised in Aurora, so he didn't see his grandfather often. Really, all he remembers of his grandfather is his funeral. There were hundreds of people at his funeral, people who wrote his line. Mays, who's now 30, still wonders, who were all those people? He thinks about them when he sits on a bus taking in all the sights and sounds. Lately, the poet tries to ride once a week for a few hours. Mays says he's learned each bus line has a different soul. Some days, honestly, man, I come on here and I throw on some Max Roach. And I just kind of watch and observe. Something really strikes me, I'll pull out the pencil and, and try to kind of construct but sometimes it's just about, like, feeling it. So right here we're at Colfax and Yosemite. This is widely known as the split between the two cities, Aurora and Denver. Mays knows a lot about Aurora. He's researched important figures who inspired road names. That includes former U.S. Vice President Schuyler Colfax, and Aurora Public Schools founder, William Smith. A part of being a poet laureate is trying to be kind of like a moderate historian. So what's a poet laureate? You have been selected to be the voice of your city. Poet laureates write and perform pieces for special events. They host workshops and they advocate for literacy. The U.S. has its own poet laureate. So does Colorado. Denver has a youth poet laureate. Jovan Mays was Aurora's first. His term ended this week, and the ride wasn't always smooth. In 2015, a couple of Aurora City Council members had concerns over some of his poetry. Mays does explore some controversial issues, like racism. Here he is reading a line from the poem Blacklike. I bet you want me to be a particular kind of black, don't you, ma'am? Not the threatening kind. Not the angry woman going off at Walmart. Not boys arguing on the bus stop. You know, the kind that's not dark enough to eat you. Other poems by Mays take on police shootings of black men, like Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. This type of subject matter came up when the Aurora City Council considered whether to extend Mays' term for two more years. Here's Councilmember Marsha Burzins during a 2015 meeting. This is the first time I've heard that a poet laureate is supposed to stir up controversy and read poems like that. I would never have voted on this if I had known that. 
In the end, city officials compromised. Mays got an extra year instead of two. Some council members said the shorter term would allow the city to pick a new poet laureate sooner. The decision did get some media attention. Number one, it was greatly blown out of proportion. That's Patty Bateman. She directs Aurora's Library and Cultural Services Department. She oversees the Poet Laureate. Bateman says when Mays applied for the volunteer position, he stood out. He has passion, enthusiasm, articulate. And she says plenty of council members supported Mays. For 2016, the council did give him a $2,000 stipend. And, Bateman says, the group didn't have to extend his term. But she says that extra time helped the city define the Poet Laureate's role. It allowed us to finish some of the programming ideas that we had. For example, the workshops, he could go into them more in depth. Mays says the debate around his position was trying. He picks his words carefully when he talks about it. Mays says he comes from a proud black family that has ties to the civil rights movement, and he wants his words to provoke and to challenge. To me, that's what great art does. It doesn't always move you where you want to be moved, but great art moves you. Mays channeled the concerns about his poetry into making the most of his final year as Aurora's Poet Laureate. He did more readings and hosted more events. That included Write Aurora, a free workshop that took residents to places around the city to write about them. Jovan Mays stares out the window as the 15L bus passes trailer parks, townhomes, and taquerias. And so in this, you see all the commercial real estate take a, a completely different turn. You know, everything all of a sudden is in Spanish or is in Ethiopian. Mays reflects on a lot while he's on the bus. He talks about suburban malls, about playing football in school, and about bus behavior. You can tell, like, some folks who are, like, praying that somebody doesn't sit next to them, and some folks are, like, praying that somebody does sit next to them. He finds inspiration in these everyday moments. Hip-hop has also been a big inspiration. That's what got him to start writing. A high school teacher noticed his talents freshman year and pushed Mays to pursue poetry. He soon got into slam poetry, a raw style of competitive performance. Years later, Mays won the National Poetry Slam Championship as a part of a Denver team called Slam Nuba. As we near the Aurora Metro Center station, the last stop on our bus ride, Mays reads a poem called Borealis. Sitting on their porch, the white-haired Bailey family watches the world change and Vietnamese men cook with walks in their garages and bedsheets are laid on driveways to roast chilies and a group of black men are playing dominoes and laughing way too loud. The piece draws a parallel between his hometown of Aurora and the Aurora Borealis, the Northern Lights. But the big kind of kicker of the end of the poem is the fact that, like, it's not just the colors of the sky here. It's like all these colors of the people here. And by colors, he means more than skin. It's about personalities, languages, professions, and all of the flavors of Aurora that he wants to capture with his poetry. Jovan Mays steps off the bus with his notebook full of black ink scratches. He has big plans now that he's finished as Aurora's first poet laureate. He wants to go to grad school to study creative writing. He wants to travel. And he plans to complete a collection of poems about bus lines and their drivers. Hey, everybody, have a good week yet. I'll see you out there by 11 o'clock because Colfax runs. I'm Corey Jones, CPR News. You can hear the poem Borealis by Jovan Mays at CPRnews.org.
And that's our show. Ryan Warner returns to the host chair tomorrow. Thanks to Michael Hughes, Michael Elizabeth Sackis, Nell London, and Andrew Dukakis. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.